Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Welcome back, GC. We've been off for a few weeks, but this has been a big week at the Supreme Court. The court heard oral arguments in the Colorado case where the Colorado Supreme Court disqualified Donald Trump from the ballot in that state. And so we'll get to that argument in just a moment. And it was a big one. Uh, but GC, why don't you first tell us about the uh, the opinions that the court released this week? Yeah, absolutely. So the first is Department of Agriculture versus Kurtz. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Gorsuch, where the court held that a consumer may sue a federal agency for violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So in this case, Kurtz secured and later fully repaid a loan from the Department of Agriculture. But the department repeatedly reported the loan as unpaid, which had devastating effects on his credit, and refused to take any corrective action when Kurtz made the agency aware of its error. So he sued the agency under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which allows you to sue a lender who negligently or willfully supplies false information to a credit reporting agency. And the department said, well, you can't sue us. We have sovereign immunity. But the court held that, nope, sovereign immunity is waived in this statute. uh, So there's no excuses for negligent reporting, even for the federal government. Next up, the court released its opinion in Murray versus UBS Securities. This was another unanimous decision. This time, uh, this one was written by Justice Sotomayor. And the court held that if a whistleblower files a claim alleging that he was fired for whistleblowing, he need not prove retaliatory intent. Instead, he only needs to prove that his whistleblowing was a part of his employer's decision to fire him. Well, I think that brings us to the oral argument, GC. Yes, it did. Just a quiet little case, not much media. <laughs> Unquestionably the biggest case of the term. This is Trump versus Anderson. Uh, very brief way of background. This case is, uh, comes out of Colorado, uh, where the Supreme Court of that state, of course, kicked Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, saying that he was uh, an insurrectionist. So uh, by way of background, I'm going to give you the text very lightly abridged of Section 3 because it highlights all the legal issues that are in this case. What a novel idea, starting with the text of the Constitution for a constitutional case. Yeah, go figure, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bold idea. Uh, so Section 3, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or an elector of the, vi- of the president and vice president or hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. So there are a number of discrete issues that the court wrestled with today. First, can a state court or a state official enforce the provision by simply declaring a candidate disqualified? Can disqualification happen before an election or does the section's prohibition on holding office mean that he can only be kicked out or barred after the election has happened but before he takes the office? The third issue, Trump is the only president to never hold another state or federal office, so he has never taken an oath except mm. as president. Thus, if the president of the United States is not an officer of the United States, he is not disqualified. Similarly, if the presidency is not an office under the United States, then Trump cannot be disqualified. Uh, 
And finally, what are the practical implications of a decision one way or another? You know, GC, this is so fascinating because Donald Trump, uh, the issues in this case are sui generis, one of a kind, right? right? Because of Donald Trump's uh, you know, lack of previous service in Correct. the federal government. Uh, before serving as president, and I just I think that's a fascinating uh, wrinkle right, uh, right. in this case. Right. So oral arguments today focused primarily on whether states can unilaterally decide that a candidate is disqualified and whether the president is an officer of the United States. On the first point, it seems that they think only Congress has the power to declare someone unqualified. For slightly different reasons, Justices Roberts, Alito, and Kagan were very vocal on this point. On the second point, it seems also like the justices thought that the president was not an officer. Justice Jackson took actually the hardest line on this point, saying essentially, look, the president isn't included on the list. That cannot be an oversight. There's no way they intended to sneak the president in under this officer's Mm. clause. Uh, So sorry, he's just not there. Justice Gorsuch also took a very strong line on this point. Now, Anderson in Colorado, the two respondents defending the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to kick Trump off the ballot, had very hard oral arguments and were thrown very few lifelines by (laughs) any justice. Um, Sort of listening to the oral arguments, Professor Randy Barnett, who's a leading 14th Amendment expert and former guest on the show, uh, also my con law professor, uh, thinks the decision will be eight to one in Trump's favor or nine zero. And um, for Mm. what it's worth, I am inclined to agree with him. You know, we had a panel earlier this week at Heritage as well, and that was also the prediction of uh, the Indiana Attorney General who was on the panel as well as some of the other folks uh, that spoke. So it'll certainly be interesting to watch and see what the court does with it. Now, in terms of the lawyers who argued the case themselves, arguing for President Trump was Jonathan Mitchell. And if you may recall, he was the architect of the uh, abortion laws in Texas uh, that when those laws made their way to the Supreme Court, Justice Kagan uh, indirectly referred to Mitchell as, quote, some genius, yep. <laughs> uh, which I think he wears as a badge of honor, uh, to be honest. Uh, but he represented President Trump in this oral argument, and he did very well. Uh, he was quick and conversational with the justices, conceded points where he needed to, and was able to really tease out some of the most uh, pressing legal issues and highlight where the pressure points in this case uh, were. Now, Jason Murray, who represented Trump's challengers, uh, I didn't think he performed quite as well. Three times he was rebuked by the justices for not directly answering their questions. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, for whom Murray clerked, uh, Justice Alito and Justice Kagan, who Murray also clerked for, all had relatively sharp words for him. He also missed some pretty glaring weaknesses in his position and was forced by Justice Gorsuch to make a major concession that office under the United States and officer of the United States are, in fact, different things, which, of course, could have important legal implications Mm -hmm. in deciding this case. By the time Colorado's Solicitor General Shannon Wells-Stevenson stood up to defend the Colorado Supreme Court's decisions, it seemed pretty clear that the justices were firmly against her position, and so they had very little to say to her at the end of the day. Yeah, so that brings it to a close. I expect a decision to come out very quickly, uh, given that we are in the midst of the primary season already. Yeah, and I think it's worth highlighting, too, and we've talked about it before, GC, how quickly this case uh, has been moving through the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court. You know, in terms of Supreme Court practice, I think to say this case has moved at anything less than warp speed uh, wouldn't do it justice. Right. Right after this, we'll go to my interview with Ted Frank. 
So what is going on with Ukraine? What is this deal with the border? How do you feel about school choice? These are the questions that come up to conservatives sitting at parties, at dinner, at family reunions. What do you say when these questions come up? I'm Mark Guiney, the host of the podcast for you, Heritage Explains, brought to you by all of your friends here at the Heritage Foundation. Through the creative use of stories, the knowledge of our super passionate experts, we bring you the most important policy issues of the day and break them down in a way that is understandable. So check out Heritage Explains wherever you get your podcasts. We're pleased to be joined today by Ted Frank, who serves as the Director of Litigation and a Senior Attorney at the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute and as the Director of the Center for Class Action Fairness, a nonprofit public interest law firm that Ted founded in 2009. It's now part of the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute. Ted, welcome to the show. It's a privilege to be here. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Now, before we dive too deeply into your career and what you're working on right now, I always like to ask my guests, because I'm curious, uh, why did you become a lawyer? Well, I was an economics major uh, in undergraduate and had a summer job uh, working for an electric company, helping them to design rates and present that to the regulatory authorities. Mm. And that got me interested in the economics of regulation And that got me interested in uh, the economics of law. And I had a girlfriend who was applying to law school and I was reading or who was attending law school and I was reading her first year case books. And that was interesting to me. Mm. So I I applied to several law schools uh, just to have that option Uh, and then uh, got into Yale, got into Harvard, got a scholarship to University of Chicago. Uh, and was just so uh, entranced by my visit to Chicago and and learning about Richard Posner and reading Richard Posner Mm. that this was just something I I wanted to do. Well, excellent. Well, as you mentioned, I know you went to the University of Chicago, and then afterwards you clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit. What was it like clerking for Judge Easterbrook? That was just a phenomenal experience. I was a like a good fourth year of law school, uh, <laughs> just learning how he approached cases and, and just seeing the volume uh, that, we, you know, there were only two clerks and we were working on every single case on his docket. Uh, right. And so we, we got just a, a full exposure to the law um, and, and his thought processes and his writing and it, I, I just learned so much in, in that process. Now, do you have any special memories from your time clerking with Judge Easterbrook, or were there any special traditions that he maintained with his clerks? Uh, he was very friendly with his clerks, uh, and we still have alumni gatherings from time to time. It's been a while since the last one, but uh, we get, we'll get together in Chicago or in his uh, – he has a second home in Alaska, and he, he likes to say mm. that uh, the summers are cooler and the winters are warmer than Chicago. <laughs> it's a more temperate area. Uh, we've actually had a couple of reunions in Alaska even. Oh, wow. Uh, that is uh, that is certainly uh, uh, just a little bit different than Chicago, <laughs> I imagine. Uh, now, after clerking for Judge Easterbrook, I know you went into private practice. What type of work did you do when you were in private practice? Well, working for Eastbrook really got me wanting to do appellate work. 
Um, and that's just very hard to break into. Sure. Uh, I went to a law firm with six or seven Supreme Court clerks in my class. And uh, so it was uh, difficult to, to stand out <laughs> among them. Sure. Uh, so I was doing antitrust. I was doing product liability. I don't recommend this as as a career approach. I just was interested in everything. So I was doing a little bit of everything, including working for uh, doing some regulatory filings for the electric company I, I had uh, I had summered for as an undergrad it was 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 doing a lot of antitrust was doing a lot of product liability. Great. Now you I know you ultimately decided to leave private practice and go into public interest uh, work. Uh, why did you make that decision? Well, I, I'd uh, been very lucky uh, with a a windfall at a poker tournament, um, and thought that I, I didn't need law firm money anymore um, and wanted to break into academia, but I'd spent so long working at a law firm that I, I needed to, to prove myself as an academic. So I went to work for a think tank mm -hmm. uh, for a few years um, and there eventually decided that I didn't really want to be an academic and, and had to, to figure my way back into litigating. Mm. So how did that come about, uh, figuring your way back into litigating? Well, once it became clear I wasn't going to serve in the McCain administration, the economy was in a weird state. Nobody was hiring. Sure. Uh, that's when I started the the Center for Class Action Fairness as just a sort of a shop where uh, I wouldn't need a large staff to be making a difference as a litigator. Mm. Uh, I was thinking that I, I would either just be doing amicus briefs uh, as a one-person shop. I, I realized that I could actually... Uh, make a difference in the class action space. Now, how did you get interested in the class action space and the abuses of the current class action system? Well, once again, just uh, my interest in law and economics uh, and class actions just is just a fascinating area for that uh, because the, the theory is just so different than the practice and in part mm. because the legal system uh, has not set up a, a good structure of incentives to avoid the problems in the class action space. So you have these conflicts of interest between class counsel and their clients, and you have a, a system that uh, relies on what are effectively ex parte presentations to uh, a judicial system that relies so heavily on adversarial presentation and, and doesn't really have the skill set or the time, or, or the resources to do the investigations that uh, Rule 23E sort of requires of the judicial system. Uh, it occurred to me that there, there was a space for somebody to come in and, and serve as that adversary on a nonprofit basis, because there, there was just mm. no way to make a living doing that honestly, and, and sort of try to uh, litigate for rules or uh, an interpretation of the rules that that properly aligned incentives between class counsel and and their clients because mm. right now you have to be exceptionally honest to to do class actions right because the system will reward you for doing things the wrong way and you're you're literally costing yourself millions of dollars if if uh, you try to do things the right way. Mm. Uh, when you're structuring a settlement. 
Well, let's unpack that a little bit, uh, Ted. Now, you mentioned Rule 23. That's obviously the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure that deals with class actions. Tell us a little bit more about these incentives and how the incentives for class counsel and the the victims uh, that these class actions are supposed to be uh, providing remedies to, how those incentives differ and what some of the most common issues you see in class action settlements are. Certainly. So the American system is is an opt-out system. So um, people are in a class action unless they affirmatively opt out. And therefore, any class representative at the behest of their class attorney uh, can rope in hundreds of thousands, millions of class members uh, without their consent uh, and without any incentive to monitor what the attorney is doing. Because again, the reason you have a class action is because the stakes are too small to litigate the cases individually, but uh, the stakes are even smaller when it comes to the class action settlement process. Sure. Um, So you have attorneys who are trying to maximize their own income. Uh, Hypothetically, they want to maximize the recovery to the class members, Uh, but you have a defendant that wants to minimize the expenses of of the class action. If they can't get the class action thrown out, they want to settle it as cheaply as possible. And they both sort of have a a tacit interest between the class counsel and the class defendant to um, freeze out the absent class members, the millions of people who the class counsel is hypothetically representing, Mm. not even hypothetically, but, but putatively representing. But the way to do that while um, getting through the approval process is to create the illusion of relief to the class members uh, and sort of uh, snooker the court into approving a settlement that's good for the attorneys but bad for the class members. Mm. Uh, And there are judges who will do that even when they know that it's good for the attorneys and bad for the class members, but many – need that that illusion of relief, that that idea that, oh, this Cypre that's going to actually friends of the class attorney is really a benefit to the class, or these coupons are are much more valuable than they really are, or there's a claims process and oh look at all the money that was made available, even though the defendant will only pay a small fraction of that. So all of that adds up uh, to creating a system that rewards attorneys for structuring settlements uh, where they get the bulk of the benefit of uh, the value of the case, the value of the settlement. Mm. And so what you're saying is in some instances, the attorneys, the class action attorneys who bring the case, they're getting uh, handsomely rewarded for bringing the class action, whereas the victims may get non-monetary relief, uh, a voucher for goods or only dollar uh, cents on the dollar in many instances. Is that a, a fair statement to make? Uh, sometimes not even that. Uh, the, the, for the very fir- for the several of the first years of that we were doing this, the zero dollar settlement was really kind of common. Mm. Uh, that the the class members wouldn't get anything that non class members weren't getting, and uh, but all of their monetary claims would be released, and the attorneys would be paid handsomely for that. Absolutely. 
Hmm. Well, given all of these problems, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, Professor Brian Fitzpatrick at Vanderbilt Law School came out with a book relatively recently uh, called The Conservative Case for Class Actions. And I know you've engaged with Professor Fitzpatrick uh, some on this issue. Uh, Do you think there is a conservative case for class actions? Well, I I think there's a case for aggregate litigation in in the, the broadest sense. Uh, the class action is a procedural joinder device, and I, I think uh, that serves an important role. But the the title of Brian's book is very effective marketing. It's it's much more interesting than what it really says uh, because <laughs> once you you get into the weeds of his arguments, and he he concedes the interim effect. Uh, elements of class actions needs procedural reform uh, to permit to permit defendants to have interlocutory appeals and get earlier dismissals so that they're not settling bad cases uh, and to have reform of statutory damages so that uh, a defendant isn't facing potentially billions of dollars of liability uh, and then he acknowledges well discovery and cost shifting needs reform and oh yeah there are all these types of class actions that should just be abolished or 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 just or are are negative and and you add all that up you know he's making an interesting academic case but it's it's for an animal that's very different uh than the reality of the American class action in the year 2023 mm. um you know, I have several other problems with uh, nuts and bolts of, of Brian's argument that I've written about in National Review and elsewhere and have spoken about and debated with Brian about. And we, we can get into that, but that that's probably a little bit too much of, of, of the weeds for this podcast. Well, what we will do, we'll post a link in the show notes to some of your uh, your articles uh, going back and forth with uh, with Professor Fitzpatrick's uh, position. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Ted. Uh, now, I know you said mentioned you started the Center for Class Action Fairness, which is now part of the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute. Uh, so, tell us uh, what is the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute? Well, it, it's an umbrella organization for the the litigation that the center does but rather than have the title the center for class action fairness we wanted to have a a, a broader scope so that mm. we we could talk about our first amendment litigation or our, our litigation against regulatory and and uh separations of power abuses uh our our any work we did on race discrimination issues the great melissa holyoke and i uh, started this as we were deciding next steps for what we were going to do with the center. Uh, now she's the Utah Solicitor General where she's winning awards and she's waiting for the right. Senate to confirm her to the Federal Trade Commission. We just wanted a, a larger uh, center-right uh, public interest litigation organization that wasn't just focused on class actions mm. while continuing to do the class action work where we'd been making such a big difference. Excellent. Now, how did you choose the name, Ted? Why did you choose the name the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute? Well, we were both Alexander Hamilton fans of The Man in the Musical, and we decided, okay, we want Hamilton in the name. As we were doing that, we were realizing that all of the good Hamilton titles and acronyms and web addresses were already taken. Uh, So just as a matter of practicality and to avoid getting sued by people with similar names... (laughs) Uh, we we threw in the name of another great principled American lawyer, Abe Lincoln, and that got us uh, the acronym, the web address uh, that was nice and short, uh, hlli.org. And uh, 
it, it, when, and we can say Hamlink and we can say fight for 15, you know, the $10 bill and the $5 bill. Um, mm. we just fun things like that. But, uh, you know, two great Americans we admired and, uh, there are only so many names out there and a lot of right. them are taken. Right. Well, tell us, what are some of the major cases that HLLI has been involved in? Well, our, you know, our class action work has won hundreds of millions of dollars for consumers and shareholders and over... Uh, the years of HLLI and its predecessors, we've just won some landmark litigation uh, about the fairness of the class action settlement procedure um, and the need to tie attorneys' incentives to, to maximizing the recovery for the class rather than their own recovery. So landmark cases like Pearson versus NBTY uh, or Brazenio versus Henderson, the infamous in-ray subway marketing. Um well, tell us a little bit about each one of those cases uh, briefly and uh, what they're about and why you got involved in them. Well, yeah, sure. All of them were class action settlements where the attorneys were going to get more money than the class members. Uh, so Brazenio versus Henderson, uh, the attorneys were going to get $7 million and the class was going to get less than a million. And uh, similarly with uh, per Pearson versus NBTY, it was a few million dollars for, for the attorneys and less than that for the class. And Subway was uh, a settlement of the foot-long class action litigation over the... Now, the, the, now the, is that the where the allegation was that the Subway foot-long sandwiches weren't actually a foot-long? Uh, that's correct. That <laughs> the bread shape... Because, you know, every... You know, they were baking a lump of dough and uh, sometimes it would be longer and sometimes it would be thicker and you know but uh people could sue over the shape of the bread because the sandwich was called a foot long even though they were they were getting the exact same amount of meat and bread and as many vegetables as they wanted uh but the bread was shaped differently than advertised uh they quickly realized that they didn't actually have a case so they settled it for a promise that Subway would try really, really hard to make the bread shape a foot long, uh, and then the attorneys would get paid. And uh, Judge mm. Sykes wrote an opinion uh, correctly calling that sort of a racket uh, without actually uh, providing any benefit to class members. Now, weren't you also involved in some uh, litigation involving rotisserie chickens uh, as well? Um, broiler chicken, I think it was, uh, okay. that, that's one that's pending now after winning in the seventh circuit, uh, the attorneys, uh, under seventh circuit law, uh, are required to get a fee that is consistent with what the market rate for att attorneys doing the sort of antitrust work that they were doing. And we demonstrated that the market rate, uh, <laughs> couldn't possibly be 33% because these attorneys were, very willing to do work for 25%, for 20%, for 15% when they bid to be in this uh, space where there were lots of law firms willing to do the work because they were following on the work of a different law firm that had originally brought the case. Uh, that 33% was just uh, a windfall and way above what the Seventh Circuit rule should be or the, the correct application of the Seventh Circuit law would be. Uh, and that would be tens of millions of dollars to the class, the difference. And the, the, the judge did award 33% and we appealed and the Seventh mm -hmm. Circuit uh, agreed with us that the court failed to consider evidence of the market rate that uh, would suggest a much lower rate. And we'll see what happens on remand. 
Now, when you get involved in these cases, Ted, are you primarily objecting uh, to the settlement arrangement in the district court? Are you directly litigating on appeal, filing amicus briefs? What does your typical involvement in a case look like? Um, well, our typical involvement is to go in at the district court level because you, you need a class member to object and you need to you can't just show up as an officious intermittler. Um, you, you need somebody of standing. Uh, and we're either objecting to the fairness of the settlement or the fairness of uh, a very large attorney fee request without objecting to the settlement itself. You know, the boiler chicken case settled for $170 million. And, you know, we're not going to say that it should have been more or less. Uh, either there, there's cash on the table and the cash will actually, class will actually get the cash. There, there's no bait and switch there. So we were, we didn't have a problem with the settlement, but we had a problem with the attorneys asking for $57, $58 million. Sure. Um, and so we'll, we'll take it up at the district court level. And if we get a good enough result at the district court level, that, that ends our involvement. Uh, but if we lose at the district court level and we have a clean appellate issue, um, we, we will ask an appeals court to come in and rule and hopefully create precedent that will make a difference in, in future, class, future class action settlements. Hmm. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit, Ted, and I want to ask you about the use of statistics in litigation. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, in July of 2023, you published a very well-received op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled Justice Jackson's Incredible Statistic. Uh, tell us about that and how you came to be clued in on this issue. Well, that that was interesting. We had this was for the uh, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case, uh, and and the Associated North Carolina case, and we had done um, an amicus brief in support of the petitioners on, uh, at both the cert stage and then with Ilya Shapiro at the merit stage, uh, mm -hmm. and. I hate amicus briefs that are just me too briefs. So right. we came in and, and we said things that were orthogonal to that. The Supreme Court hates the word orthogonal, but I think. Why do they hate the word, Ted? Uh, they, they think it's too complicated. Their guide to oral argument says don't use the word orthogonal. Um, <laughs> but we included some additional information about how the, the diversity rationale of uh, Gruder was infecting race discrimination across all sorts of different elements sure. and it was counterproductive. So I w we were paying attention to the case. We had done the petitioner's briefs, and then it was time for the respondent's amicus briefs. And I was very curious what people were going to say in those. Were they addressing what we said? What were they saying? So um, the SCOTUS blog website had a a summary of all of the amicus briefs. And I started there. One of their descriptions was of the um, AA, and AA stands for American Association or American Academy or Academy mm -hmm. of American I, I, or Association of American, but the, the, the medical college's amicus sure. brief. Uh, and it had quoted this statistic and it said, and, and it was a really effective statistic. It was, if this statistic was true, it was as good an argument for affirmative action I had ever seen. And their argument was that having an African-American doctor doubled the chances of black infant survival. 
That's a pretty shocking statistic. And that's a uh, shocking when you, statistic. When you hear it. Right, right. And like, wow, that that's amazing, uh, right? But on the other hand, how could that possibly be true? It, it's not the right. case that white doctors are killing half of African-American infants at death. The infant mortality rate, that, that's a holocaust. That's that's a genocide. How could that possibly be true? And and so I, I'm, I'm questioning that to myself as I'm thinking about it. And so I, I, I dive into the brief, and they're citing a study. And so, okay, uh, Groucho and Chico Mark in a day at the races. I'm going to dive deeper into all the books. <laughs> you get to the study, and the study itself says no such thing. And in fact, the, sure. the, the study has its own problems in terms of exaggerating the effectiveness of African-American doctors. But what was important was is that there was nothing in that study that supported the claim of right. – uh, that brief, it, 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 there there was a very very low rate for um, white doctors and and black babies, and and a, a slightly lower rate holding everything else equal for black doctors and black babies. But uh, even that uh, was problematic because you weren't controlling for the different types of doctors, and there were just problems with sure. the way the study was done. But, now, but e e even accepting the study's arguments, it was not saying that it doubles the chances of success. It was saying it have the chances of failure, but you're talking a very, very, very tiny number. Right. And, now, and if I remember correctly, you actually wrote a fairly lengthy Twitter thread uh, after the brief was filed, but before the decision came out, pointing out many of these issues. Isn't that, that right? That's correct. So I wrote this Twitter thread and and then I said, but, you know, look, the, the, it's interesting because you, you have this deluge of amicus briefs and you have a single reply brief of just a few thousand words. Uh, that isn't going to spend time going into the weeds of each, and that's the third time I've said going into the weeds this podcast. But they're <laughs> it, not going to 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 sit down and and refute every dumb thing that an amicus right. brief says. And so you have this sensational, really shocking statistic that is, if true, is the best argument there's ever been for affirmative action. It might even be a uh, compel you know a subs even justify racial discrimination under strict scrutiny um and uh and i just sort of predicted that this is going to find its way into one of the opinions and sure enough that that's exactly what happened uh right. it, like word for word just pulled from the misleading brief uh, it ended up in, in Justice Jackson's dissent, and I wrote another Twitter thread saying, oh, my, uh, call me Nostradamus, uh, I, I predicted this would happen, and, <laughs> and it happened, and here's the mistake, and here's why it's wrong, and here's what's wrong with the underlying study. Uh, even if you accepted the, the underlying study, it still doesn't say what Justice Jackson said, because a lot of people were, you know, it, it's a shocking statistic, and, and lots of newspaper articles were just quoting it word for word from the, the, the Justice Jackson dissent about, you know, how uh, right. uh, the majority opinion was actually going to kill babies. Um, and, and so I had another Twitter thread that went a little bit more viral this time. And uh, the Wall Street Journal invited me to uh, turn it into 700 words for them. And uh, that uh, itself got a lot of attention and within 
uh, a few hours, uh, the medical college's lawyers came in and, and wrote what was pretty much an unprecedented lawyer, a letter to the court, uh, sort of quasi-retracting uh, the, the more uh, egregious claim and then substituting um, a still inaccurate claim, but le- slightly less egregious. Right. Uh, and then uh, Justice Jackson never, not even with uh, the, the embarrassed mea culpa of, of the medical colleges, uh, never uh, changed her opinion. So it's, it's going to be in the U.S. reports somewhere. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Now, I have to ask you a little bit of an unusual question, uh, Ted. I noticed in your official bio on the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute, uh, it says you are, quote, played by a much more handsome Gentile in an HBO docudrama based on a book that mentions Mr. Frank once on page 362. Uh, So what is the docudrama and who is the actor that played you? Uh the actor is <laughs> Brian Darcy James, a Tony-nominated uh, actor who was the original King George uh, in off-Broadway version of Hamilton, by coincidence. But okay. uh, the movie uh, was Game Change, and mm. uh, in 2008, uh, while I was working for um, with attorneys who were working for the McCain campaign, uh, McCain's staff decided that they didn't like any of their short list of vice presidential candidates and uh, were going to pick somebody who hadn't been vetted yet. Um, and they had made the decision to pick Sarah Palin, but they didn't want to say that they hadn't vetted her. So um, got me to uh, spend uh I, 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 over the course of 48 hours uh, without sleep, I wrote a, f- with, with the help of several other attorneys, wrote a 47-page uh, vetting report, which they, they promptly ignored uh, and, and, and selected her anyway. Uh, and that was uh, written about, or excuse me, uh, there, there, there was a book about the 2008 campaign, and then they made right. it into the movie Game Change. Uh, and as I like to say, the the actor who played me uh, was good looking and and didn't say anything, so you can tell that the movie was, was fictional. Uh, well, that is uh, that is quite the uh, quite the claim to to fame, Ted. And uh, yes, uh, every, I've, I've spent the fifteen years since trying to get that out of the first line of my obituary. So, uh, uh, well, it makes for a, a fascinating read on your uh, your bio page. Well, I have a final question for you that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any justice, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, it's cheating a little bit, uh, the premise of the question, because uh, this justice only wrote one important opinion and then he got it completely wrong. Uh, But I think the answer for any aficionado of American history has to be John Jay, uh, Mm. as you can talk to him about. The founding, the Federalist Papers, the 1777 New York Constitution, the Treaty of Paris, the two Continental Congresses, uh, learning about Washington and Hamilton and other founders, uh, uh, teasing him about Chisholm v. Georgia and the 11th Amendment, uh, gossip about Justices Rutledge and Wilson. It'd be a, you know, it'd be hard to end that conversation. Mm. Interesting. Interesting choice. Well, Ted, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. We'd love to have you back again in the future. Uh, As often as you'd want me. I'd love to do it again. (laughs) 
Well, Zach, that brings us to trivia. And uh, today, I thought uh, we would do some trivia about Salmon P. Chase. Oh, former Chief Justice, uh, Treasury Secretary, and uh, General uh, Man About Town uh, yeah, in yeah. D.C., I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the reason uh, I wanted to do Salmon P. Chase uh, is because he is actually a stealth star of the Trump versus Anderson case. Mm. Why is that? Well, if I recall correctly, I think you know there's very little precedent on this area of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and who can be disqualified. Uh, but in a practice that really no longer exists today, uh, justices of the court, including the chief justice, used to ride circuit and hear cases within their territory. And I believe he was one of the few justices who has opined on this issue, albeit while he was out riding circuit. Yes, that's exactly right. He decided a case called Griffin's case, which featured very prominently in oral arguments today, uh, in which he held that only Congress can establish the procedures for disqualifying someone under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, the case, of course, is not precedential, but it does carry a lot of weight because it's one of maybe the only, if not one of very few cases that's squarely on point mm. was delivered by a chief justice right after the Civil War. The reading also seems to square uh, with the concerns expressed by most of the justices at oral argument in the Trump case. So I imagine we'll see uh, reliance on that in the opinion. Very interesting. Yes, well done. So number two, throughout his long career, Chase had a front row seat to many historic events. In 1864, uh, Lincoln accepted Chase's resignation as Treasury Secretary and nominated him to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Who uh, did he replace? Well, he replaced the infamous uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney, I believe. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, now, Chief... did I pronounce that correctly, JC? Yes, it is I, Taney. I think you gave me grief for that uh, last time we were discussing <laughs> is that this. Right? Did you uh, say Taney? Uh, uh, you know, I plead the fifth, but uh, <laughs> hard to say. So, um, yes, Taney had served as Chief Justice since March of 1863 until his death in October of 1864. Taney replaced the great Chief Justice John Marshall. So Chase was stepping into a role that had not been vacant for many years. I think he was the sixth Chief Justice. Mm. But also a, sort of a point of um, interesting trivia about this, if you will. So Taney, of course, issued Dred Scott, right? right? He was a pretty explicit white supremacist. Chase, on the other hand, was a radical abolitionist. Right. Um, so very and different if, men. And in fact, I believe uh, Chase, when he was Chief Justice, he actually swore in one of the first black members of the Supreme Court bar after the Civil War. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Well, well done. Uh, number three, who, if you know, was it that replaced Chase as Chief Justice? I believe it was Morrison Waite uh, came after Chase. Very well done. Uh, I have to confess, before prepping trivia today, I didn't know the answer <laughs> to this question. So well now, I'm not sure I could tell you much more <laughs> about uh, Chief Justice Waite uh, other than the well, fact that he exists. But uh, <laughs> Don't uh, you worry because uh, Google <laughs> recently solved that uh, knowledge gap for me too. Uh, well, so, let's, uh, let's learn together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, there's actually a really interesting story about how Waite came to be nominated by President Grant. Uh, so after Chase died in May of 1873, Grant waited about six months before um, offering to nominate Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York. But Conkling uh, declined. I was going to say I'm guessing that didn't work out. Correct. Con well, Conkling actually refused. After that, Grant offered the job to Senator Morton of Indiana, then Senator Howe of Wisconsin, his secretary of state, Hamilton Fish, and then to his AG, George Williams. Uh, but Williams was accused of corruption, and so Grant had to withdraw his nomination. 
Then Grant nominated former Attorney General Caleb Cushing, <laughs> who was a Democrat but had to withdraw it, uh, too, due to opposition from Senate Republicans. So finally, Waite gets the job. Very interesting. Well, I guess it, uh, it is a little bit of uh, being at the right place at the right time and uh, hoping so. nobody else wants the job. <laughs> well, yeah, or maybe in Waite's case, being the, the nearest live body who was willing to say yes. yes. What I live for, GC. Uh, <laughs> Uh, very, very interesting, though. Very interesting. All right. Number four. Chase is the author of one of the most famous cases uh, arising out of the Civil War called Texas versus White. Do you know what that case held? I think, if I'm recalling correctly, did Chase say in that case that essentially states had no legal right to secede from the Union? Yes, that's right. At least not unilaterally. Uh, he said that the Constitution provided for a permanent union. Although he did say that the union might be dissolved through revolution or through consent of the states. Mm. Not entirely sure what revolution means in that context, but that's what he wrote. Hmm. Well done. So last question. Chase is in a very exclusive club of former chief justices, which includes only William Rehnquist and John Roberts. Uh, although they're all actually appointed by Republicans, that's not the club. What is it? Well, just thinking quickly here, I and I'm assuming this is sort of related, but sort of unrelated to their duties directly at the court. Uh, I think they all presided over impeachment trials. Well done, Zach. That's exactly right. Um, Chase presided at the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson, mm. William Rehnquist, Clinton, Roberts, Trump. Although I guess John Roberts, in terms of uh, impeachments presided over, would now uh, outrank Rehnquist and Chase, just because Donald Trump was impeached twice. Yes, that's right. Yes. Mm. So uh, Chief Justice Roberts is in a club within a club. Very interesting. Well, great trivia today, GC. I and learned well a lot. You. Clean sweep. Well, you know, I don't get it often, but I'll take it when I can. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, uh, you know, I was going to say something, but I'll, uh, I'll decline. Uh, we'll end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And feel free to list me as your favorite host. And as always, <laughs> we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at SCOTUS 101, and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.